On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled in the spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out and give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what has bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever just gotten lost in a story? The day is the Sabbath. And Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And like as he is sharing and as he's going, like all of a sudden... Like mid-sentence, just everything stops. Dead quiet. And, and you see maybe this look on Jesus' face and he peers to the back. And he sees a woman that's been crippled for 18 long years. And in a moment of beauty... Jesus' heart, it must just be filled with compassion. And what he does is he tells this woman, he says, Woman, stand up. Come forward. Come to the front. And and I'm sure in that moment for her, there must have been so many different thoughts going on in her mind. Like, Can you imagine? She's been crippled for 18 years. And now she's being called out to stand up in front of everybody in the synagogue. Maybe a little bit of frustration in her mind. Or maybe a little bit of confusion. Who knows? But as she stands up, this is what you would see. And she begins to... To, to make her way to the front. You see, this woman's crippling was that she was completely bent over. She could not stand up straight. And I'm sure like as she's going up, her heart is pounding. Maybe thinking about all the times that she's been in front of people before and she's been made fun of. Or all the times before where she has been called out and what's happened hasn't maybe been good. But Jesus calls her out and he tells her to come forward. Stops the teaching just right in the middle of it. Can you imagine that happening tonight? Just right in the middle. And as she comes up, he does something beautiful. He doesn't just like put a hand on her and he's like, sister, you're healed. (laughs) You know, like that's not what he does. He puts both hands on this woman in, in just a moment of beauty, surreal. And he tells her, you are healed from your infirmity. Now, as that happens, there's a synagogue ruler. And as he sees this woman worshiping, because now after 18 long years, she's so excited. I can stand up like I can I can move 
Like, I've forgotten what it feels like. I'm like, all of a sudden, three feet taller. This is amazing, you know? She's so excited and she's worshiping God and she's praising God. And this synagogue ruler, as he's looking on, text says he is indignant. He is angry. And as his frustration grows, instead of confronting Jesus in the moment and saying, bro, what are you doing? Like, you know that we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. What he does, and I think maybe because he's a coward, is he calls out the people. And he says, you know, there's six days that you can come and that you can be healed. Today is a Sabbath. Don't come on the Sabbath to be healed. And what does Jesus do? Like, there's just something that's just got to be growing up in Jesus. And he looks at him and he says, like only Jesus could do, hypocrite, hypocrite. How can you say that? How, how can you do that? I mean, aren't you the same guy that has an ox and a donkey and on the Sabbath? Don't you go and you take your ox to get a drink of water? How much more important is this daughter of Abraham? This is a woman. This is your sister. She's been crippled for 18 years. And you're telling me that you'll take care of your donkey, but you won't take care of this daughter of God. That doesn't even make sense. And after he says it, the text says that the people, a group of people were delighted. But the group of people that were opposing Jesus, all the people that believed like the synagogue ruler believed, it says that they were humiliated. Why are they humiliated? Because the truth cuts. Because the truth burns. Because the truth can show us everything that we are and everything that we're not. And that's exactly what Jesus does. All right. So I hope that you're lost in the story. Now, there's four, I think, major meanings that we can derive out of this text. And it's amazing because it always happens this way. Like the first time I read the text, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fill 40 minutes with this. And like by the time that you get done preparing, you're like, I don't know if we're going to get out after two hours, you know, because there's just so much good stuff here to be able to talk about now. I want you to, if you didn't get uh, one of our bulletins, if you could raise your hand, please. And just so we can drop one off to you real quick, because it's got all the notes on the back. Is there anybody here that didn't get a bulletin when you walk through the door? Yeah, don't, don't be shy. Seriously, just raise your hand. I've got some girls that are going to come up and they're going to give you one of our bulletins so that you can follow along in these notes and, and you can be a part of this with us. Okay, so the first thing that I, a first meaning that I think that we can see from the text is this. And there's a lot of different meanings, I think, but, but there's four that we're going to focus on tonight. And the first one is this, that the Sabbath brings freedom. Okay, that should be the number one point on your bulletin. The Sabbath brings freedom. I hope just that line like starts getting you guys excited. You're like, oh yeah, here we go. The Sabbath, it brings freedom. If you look in this text, just in what we've just read, there is a consistent theme that's going on. We see Jesus saying to this crippled woman to be free on the Sabbath from her infirmity. And then later on, as he's dialoguing against this synagogue ruler, he says, wait a second, wait a second. Don't you untie your donkey? Basically, don't you free your donkey to go get a drink on the Sabbath? 
Then again, that was verse 15 and verse 16. Well, then don't you think that this woman should be free on the Sabbath too? There's a consistent theme happening here. And I think that it is this, that the Sabbath for all of us should bring freedom in the same way that it brought freedom to this woman. You see, Jesus in this moment, like she doesn't come and beg to be healed. Rather, he's teaching, he stops everything, and he personally decides that he is going to heal her. Okay? He, decide, he chooses to heal on the Sabbath. So, if the Sabbath is supposed to be freeing in the time of Jesus, is it still supposed to be freeing to us today? And I think the overwhelming answer to that question is yes. Yes. The Sabbath brings freedom then and it brings freedom now. I think that there's two um, primary reasons that we should all look at the Sabbath bringing freedom. And the first is this. The Sabbath is a day that has been set apart for us to worship God and to remember the finishing work of Jesus Christ on the cross where He defeated sin and death. And on the third day, He rose from the dead. The Sabbath is to be a day to remember that we are slaves no longer, that we are not in the bondage of sin, but that we have the opportunity through the blood of Jesus Christ to be able to worship God on a day that Jesus, that God, that the Father has set apart for us. That should be exciting. You see, in the New Testament church, the day is moved from Saturday to Sunday because Sunday was the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, right? We see that in um, John chapter 20, verse 1, where the first day of the week, Jesus is, he, he comes back from the dead three days later. And so this day becomes Sunday because it's a celebration of what Christ has done as he's defeated death. Christ died on a cross to free you from the bondage of sin and you have a day a whole day set apart you should celebrate it all week amen but you have a whole day that you get to revel (laughs) in the beauty of what christ has done on the cross galatians chapter 5 verse 1 check out this passage it is for freedom that christ has set us free stand firm then And do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. We have freedom in Christ and we have a day that's been set apart where we get to celebrate what he's done for us. The second reason, all right, that we should all be having freedom on the Sabbath is this, is because God has set apart a day for us to be able to rest from our work. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we see that God creates the heavens and the earth, right, in six days. Right? We all know this. We probably heard this story. And then on the seventh day, He rests. Now, many people could say, well, God is just setting an example there. All right? That's, that's what God did, but that's not necessarily what we have to do. Well, if it was good enough for God, I think it's good enough for us. You know what I mean? In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 10, we know that it's not only an example that we should also rest from our work, but God, as he passes down the law to Moses, tells us, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your sons or daughters, nor your manservant or maidservants, nor your animals, nor the aliens within your gates. Now, for any of you that's like realizing that you get to take a day just to worship and to rest and to do acts of mercy, like, is that putting you in bondage? Like, to me, I get excited. Because I'm like, wow, God has set apart a whole day for me to be able to stop everything I do all throughout the week and to be able to worship and to rest in Him. That's beautiful. So, are you experiencing freedom on the Sabbath? Are you experiencing freedom on Sundays by, by being able to worship and being able to rest and being able to do acts of mercy for others? If you're not able to experience freedom on the Sabbath, knowing that God has created the Sabbath to be freeing for you, here's a couple questions that I want you to ask yourself. Do you understand what the Sabbath is? Have you understood that it is a day that we get to celebrate freedom from the bondage of sin? That Christ He beat it on the cross. He defeated death. And He rose from the third day. And it's a celebration of that. Do you understand that? Do you recognize that God has set that part a day as holy for Him and for us to be able to celebrate Him and that you are not to rest or that you are to rest? I'm sorry. Do you recognize those things? Now, if not journey into what the Sabbath is and try to understand this day that God has created for you to be able to to rest and to worship. Now, if you do understand that, but still on the Sabbath, like you are struggling with being able to worship and being able to rest, there's another thing that may be going on. And this is what I want to encourage you in. And and I want to encourage you in this from a, a journey that I've been going on myself. It may be that you are not preparing for the Lord's Day, okay? About, probably about four weeks ago, Heather and I realized that on the Sabbath, on Sunday, when we were waking up and we were getting ready for Lot Family, quite honestly, like we were stressed out. Like we were fighting and, and the kids were running around naked throughout the house, you know, without their diapers. And, and it was just crazy. Our, our Lot Family would come in and like I'm still trying to set stuff up and I'm like trying to get a, one more glance at my notes. And I felt like, man, if, if I'm supposed to be able to rest and to be able to worship on the Sabbath, I'm just not experiencing it. And this is where I was so convicted. I understand what the Sabbath is, but the reality was in my life, I wasn't taking the steps that I needed to to prepare for it. God has given me the blessing of being a small group leader here at our church. But with that blessing also comes responsibility. And with my responsibilities, maybe I wasn't getting my teaching done on time or I wasn't setting up my house on time. So what God has shown me through this whole journey is that, you know what? By Saturday night, I need to have all the tables and all the chairs set up. If I'm going to clean up my house, it needs to be done. And I'm just saying this is for me personally. I'm not telling you guys that you all need to go and do this. But here's what I've learned. For me, everything that needs to be done, my teaching, my setting up the house, cleaning, it needs to be done by that Saturday night so that on Sunday... I can wake up, I can make my daughter Olivia cheesy scrambled eggs like she loves. 
You know, I can read some books with my kids. I can wake up and I can rest and I can get ready knowing, man, today is the Lord's day. I get to celebrate Jesus today. And like, that's my only responsibility. Loving my family, resting, celebrating Jesus. Freedom, in the words of William Wallace, right? Freedom, that's exciting. And so for you, if you are not experiencing freedom in the Sabbath, is it possible that you don't understand what the Sabbath is? Or is it possible that you're not preparing for it? How tonight, tomorrow, could you begin to look to Sunday and say, you know what, there's some things I know I need to get done. I've got a test on Monday, whatever the case may be. And I need to prepare today so that on Sunday when I wake up, it's go time with me and Jesus. And we're going to worship and we're going to rest and we're going to make that day what God has called it to be. The Sabbath should bring freedom. The next thing I want to share with you guys is this. Legalism fuels hypocrisy. Legalism fuels hypocrisy. When I was 16 years old, I played three different sports. I was extremely active And many of you guys that are athletes out there, you know this, that when you are like exerting yourself all the time, like you are hungry all the time. I would get home at three o'clock and I would pound down like five chili cheese dogs. Then I would have dinner at five and it was like no thing, you know, if I did that now, I would be 400 pounds, but I would do it then and, and I could get away with it. And then after dinner, like I would still be hungry. And one of these particular nights, Like, I was so hungry. We had run all these sprints in football, and we were getting ready for a big game, and I was starving. And we had finished dinner. We had had tacos, which I love. Mexican food, the bomb. Okay, if you ever want to make one of your pastors happy, bring me tacos to my house. All right? I love them. We had just had tacos. Dinner is done. Everybody's gone. I go into the kitchen. I get into the fridge, and there is this fatty bowl of shredded cheddar cheese. And that's like one of my downfalls. I love cheese. And so I go and I open up the fridge and I pull out this bowl and like my, I'm just salivating and I'm like, ah. and so I just can't resist. I don't get a plate. I don't get a spoon. I just take my fingers and just pulling out and sticking it in my mouth and eating it. It was so good. And all of a sudden I hear this, Jason, what are you doing? Get out of the cheese. My dad is behind me, you know, and he's getting up in my grill because I've got my fingers in the cheese and they want to, you know, use this cheese later for something else. So I get out of the cheese. I'm like, fine, whatever. You know, I I go back a couple hours later. I'm still hungry. I I mean, I tried to be a good boy when I was 16, but it was, you know, I can't say I always made it. And this is one of the times where I didn't make it. So I go back in, I open up the fridge and it's just like calling my name, this bowl of cheese. And so I go back into it. I disobey my parents. I know it was wrong. I get this bowl of cheese out. I take another big old bite with my fingers. And sure enough, it's like my dad had followed me in there. He's like, Jason, I told you once, get out of the cheese. So I, he calls me off the cheese. I'm like, hang on, I slam the fridge. I'm like, dad, I'm just so hungry. I just want to eat. I'm starving. Shut it. There wasn't anything else to eat. And so I just go back and I, and I leave. And I go to bed later that night, still feeling hungry. And it's probably 10 o'clock. I fall asleep. Right, I'm so deprived, I know. And all of a sudden, like, I, I look over and see my clock. It's midnight. I hear something. I, I, I wake up and I get out of bed. And I begin to go, you know, through the hall, through the living room. Like, I see a, a light, you know, kind of beckoning me from the, the kitchen. 
And so I walk into the kitchen and I see my dad. <laughs> and he's bent over. <laughs> got his fingers up in the cheese. And I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? Like, you just told me I couldn't eat the cheese with my fingers. What are you doing? And sure enough, he's like, Jason, go to bed. But what? What was that? Here's the point of that. This is the deal. Legalism fuels hypocrisy. When you make unnecessary rules that even you can't keep, you're setting a snare for yourself. You're going to get in a trap and you're going to be a hypocrite. That's exactly what happens here in this text. Because what Jesus, Jesus isn't calling him out because he's taking his donkey to the water, right? I don't think that that's the point. The point is, he's taking his donkey to the water while at the same time not allowing this daughter of Abraham to be free. That's being a hypocrite. You know what? Don't, if you're going to do one thing, don't make the rule for the other. We have to be so careful as a church about drawing legalistic lines in the sand that Scripture does not draw. Because when we begin to draw lines even that we don't want to keep or can't keep, then we create more opportunities to be hypocrites, right? Now, I know that like this may be kind of still out there for some of you guys. I'm, I'm going I'm to do something with you, and I want you to know that each of these scenarios that I share about these different denominations, I love them, and I consider them our brothers. And one of the ones I'm going to share about is even connecting maybe to me a little bit more personally, because I would consider it the denomination that I'm closest with. But we need to look at these different circumstances and try to evaluate, are some of the things that we're doing only creating more traps for us to become hypocrites? Because even God doesn't say that. Even Scripture doesn't say that that's what we have to do. Check this out. The first example I want to give you guys, I got this quote off of um, the Assemblies of God's General Council website. I love the Assemblies of God. I am in no way trying to rip on them, but I want, I want to share something with you guys. On their website, as they're going through what they believe, they say, in the face of this moral erosion, the church calls all Christian adults and parents to abstain from social dancing for themselves and their children in light of God's desire for His people to be a separate and a holy people. Now, I was kind of, honestly, I was kind of surprised by that. I think of the Sibley God's people who like to get down, you know, and like to worship. And I, I love that. Um, so as I saw that, I was like, wait a second. I mean, does the Bible go so far to say that if I wanted to, to take my wife to the St. Charles Community College and, and get lessons in ballroom dancing, like that that would be wrong? I think it'd be very romantic. Don't you girls think, you know? That would be cool. I don't, I don't think that that is by any means. Can I take ballroom dancing lessons with my wife and still worship? I think the answer is yes. I don't think that's taking me into sin. And more importantly, I don't think the Bible specifically says that we can't dance. And there's no scripture to support that. And so here's the deal. Rather than teaching people to worship with their body and with their lives, we set up a rule. And I would have to think that there's a whole lot of people that are maybe in the assembly's church and other churches that have this same rule. My wife's denomination, where she came from, had it too. That there's a lot of people dancing, wouldn't you think? Because of that, it's pushing them further into being hypocrites as seen by the world. And it's unnecessary. Here's another one, another example that I want to give to you guys. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. If there's any denomination that I would say I'm closely associated with, 
I would say it's that denomination. But here's something um, from the NBC that was just recently passed down here in the last year. The NBC's annual meeting at Tantara passed a resolution 503 to 360 that in part urged that no one be elected to serve as a trustee or as a member of an entity or community of the Missouri Baptist Convention that is a user of alcoholic beverages. Scripture teaches clearly that drunkenness is a sin. Make no mistake. But what Scripture does not say is that you must be prohibited to enjoy having alcohol. It doesn't say that. So, what begins to happen when we begin to set up more rules is that if there's people that are already on this board or desiring to be on this board, they're going to search out Scripture and they're either going to say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be on this or maybe they're still going to drink in private or maybe they'll just stop. I don't know. But here's the deal. Through Scripture, in light of Scripture, what do we see about alcohol? And then from evaluating that, is it possible that trying to tell a whole group of people, like trying to tell every church pastor in that convention that they have to teach abstinence is the only way, is that healthy? Or would it be better to teach that, you know what, worshiping God with all of your life, glorifying Him in everything that you do is the way to know God. It's the way to serve Him. Instead of drawing lines in the sand that can trap people. Here's one more example that I wanted to give to you guys. Oh, I don't have a slide for this one. I'm just going to tell it to you. This is one that, that is very deep personally. Okay, and again, I love our brothers. But in the early 2000s, maybe even in some of the late 1990s, we begin to see something happening in the Catholic Church, namely in the Roman Catholic Church, where there are many priests that were being accused of sexual misconduct with children or people that were uh, within their congregation. Now, is it possible that by setting up for all priests that they had to remain celibate, that they couldn't have a wife and engaged in normal sexual relationships, that it further pushed them into the potential of becoming hypocrites? Because even God hasn't created them with that desire to remain abstinent for the rest of their lives. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't certain people that God has called to not marry. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't hear that. But what I am saying is that in light of Scripture, do we see that elders should be called to not be married? Through Scripture, many times we see that the elder needs to be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, that his children need to obey, but we don't necessarily see that all pastors have to not marry. And when you begin to tell people that and they believe that and they're all trying to follow that, there's more opportunity to become hypocrites. We have to be so careful not to draw lines that even Scripture doesn't draw. Legalism can fuel hypocrisy. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't have very specific laws about certain things. We know the Ten Commandments is true. All right, we, we, we follow that. But if Scripture doesn't say it, we better be very careful to try to hold people to something that Scripture doesn't say. Let's keep going. The next one I want to share with you guys is that Jesus defends the defenseless. And this piece is absolutely beautiful. Again, take yourself back to this story. Jesus is teaching. He could very well go on 
but he sees this woman that has been over. I imagine in so many ways that she felt so helpless. How hard must it have been for her to even carry on normal tasks that we would carry on all the time? And as he sees her, it's like his heart breaks for her. And he brings her up, placing both hands on her, showing his compassion, and he heals her. Now, being compassionate for those that are crippled and for those that were widows and for orphans is not something that Jesus, he does it all through his ministry. But because he's God, it's not something that just started at that moment. But God has been compassionate for orphans and for widows since the beginning of Moses sharing the law with people. Turn, if, if you have your scriptures, turn with me to Deuteronomy. I want you guys to see this. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And we'll also have it up on the, on the screen too. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Check this out. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. You see, God's cause has been the the cause of widows and orphans and aliens since the time of Moses in Deuteronomy. So as Jesus comes on the scene, he just continues in that cause. He's taking care of people that cannot take care of themselves. So what does that mean for us? What is if, if it's God's cause, should it be our cause too? It should. As we see in the New Testament church, looking back even in Acts chapter 6, The church begins to grow and amazing things are happening. And the apostles, as they're overseeing the church and it begins to grow, they realize we don't have the time to be able to take care of the food that the widows need. And so what do they do? The church gets going well and then they stop? No. They appoint deacons. That was the role of deacons. It wasn't to sit in some closed room and to work on business matters of the church. The role of deacons deacons was to take care of those that were helpless, to take care of those that had needs. And so the deacons were distributing food to the widows so that the apostles could focus on the work of teaching and of leading. The early church focused on the needs of those that were helpless. Also, it's not just that it's a corporate responsibility of the church, but each of us, friends, has a personal responsibility to continue the cause of Christ by helping the defenseless. Check this out. If you, again, if you have your words, I want you to turn to James chapter 1. <clears throat> James chapter 1, verse 27. James chapter 1, verse 27. This is what this text tells us. Religion that our God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Quite honestly, how are you doing in the realm of continuing the cause of Christ in defending the defenseless? When is the last time that you can look back and you can say, you know what, 
I came in contact with somebody that was defenseless and I stood in the gap to protect them, to provide food for them, to help provide lodging for them, just to help with some very simple things. The other day, I had the opportunity to visit one of our homes that we had taken care of a woman in Second Saturdays. And this woman is so sweet. Her name is Juanita and she's got to be in her 70s and she has a really hard time getting around. Well, interestingly enough, the woman that takes care of Juanita is in her 80s, <laughs> okay? And so I'm, I'm hanging out talking to Juanita and her woman, that this woman that is taking care of her, 80 years old, is trying to carry in all these groceries to help her out. And so I see this and I'm like, wait a second. I mean, I've got time in my life to stop and to go help carry in groceries for Juanita. If we don't step up and to take care of the widows and the orphans and the crippled people in this community of St. Charles, who will do it? Who's going to do it? Right now, one of the things I wanted to share with you is that Katie Getz, who leads our second Saturday ministry, has a vision for all of the widows and for all the elderly ladies that we've helped in second Saturdays. We are going to partner each of them with one person who has a desire to stay in contact with them throughout the week so we can know if they need food, so we can know if something in their house is broken. One of the things that we had talked about the other day was that if one of these women were to fall, because so many of them don't even have family that can take care of them and don't even have friends, what would happen if they fell and they didn't have a way to get to a phone? They could be there for days. Why is it 80-year-old women taking care of 70-year-old women? Why is it not you? Why is it not me? How come when I went to help that they were shocked that a young person would help them? What does it say about our culture? God has called us to defend the defenseless. Will Matthias Lot be a church that will do that? Will we step up to the task? Last thing I want to share with you guys is this, that bad things happen to good people. Let me say that again. Bad things happen to good people. Now, I know I'm using a, a cliche there and I want to make this point very, very clear. Let's go back to the story. Let's think about this woman for a moment. She has been crippled, again, for 18 long years. But where is she at? Like, is she at home, like, sitting in her despair is she off someplace angry with God? Where do we find this woman after 18 years? She's in the synagogue coming to worship the Father. The text says that she's been bound by a spirit that is crippling her body, but yet she continues to come and she's there. The text also says that she is the daughter of Abraham. Most commentators would all agree that this is speaking more about her spiritual sense and less of her physical sense. And so, if we begin to look at this woman all the time, this is what the church want to do. This is what we want to do. We say, look, like Jesus comes on the scene and she's healed. Praise God. And yes, we should say that. But what we don't take time to do is what about the 18 years? What about every day of that woman's life where she would wake up in the morning knowing that she would have to live another day where she is completely bent over and taking these tiny steps. Can you imagine her trying to go to the market, trying to purchase food? 
I imagine all the adults would just stand around and possibly they're just staring at her in dismay. Not only is she an outcast, but in this culture that is, is highly favorable toward men, she's a woman. And so she's got two strikes against her. Can you imagine the children in the marketplace that are making fun of her, that are making jokes about the way that she can't stand up straight? <laughs> her life for 18 years was not easy. And instead of just looking at the miracle, can we look at she went through a very hard season. Why? Why? If God is so loving, if God is so good, if God wants to meet all of our needs, then why would he allow this woman to suffer for 18 long years? Here's what I believe the answer is. Because God knew exactly what she needed to give him the absolute most glory from her life at the right time. Those 18 years were tough, no doubt. But in that moment where she goes from this to this and she worships God and the people say, praise God. There's people that are delighted for that moment in time. She gave God maximum glory from her life. It took 18 years, hard years. They were tough. Bad things happened to good people. But she glorifies God in the end. And she's able to worship him through the circumstance. I want to share a passage of scripture with you. Romans chapter 8, 28. Says this, Romans chapter 8, 28. Many times, especially in churches that would like to teach that when you meet Jesus, you're going to be healthy forever, all right? Many times we like to look at this text and we say, Romans 8, 28, hmm. And we know that in all things, God's worked, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We say, you see, God is working out all things that are going to be good for us. Well, all things are not necessarily good all the time. And the good that he's working, working them out to is the good that is going to be going according to his purpose. You want to know what God's purpose is? It's to glorify himself above all things forever, all the time. He's more concerned about his glory than he is about anything else. He must be because he's God. If he was concerned more with our glory, then he wouldn't be God. It would be impossible. And so God is using this woman's life in the struggle to glorify himself because that's his purpose to glorify him. And for her, if she's a daughter of Abraham, if she's a believer, ultimately, that's the best thing for her, too. Amen. Check this out. I know this is hard, a hard teaching, but I want to share with you guys John chapter nine. If you're struggling with this theology, John chapter nine. Verses 1 to 5 says this. As we were preparing for the teaching tonight, Jamont had shared this passage with me, and I'm so thankful he did because I hadn't even thought about it in relation to this teaching. But this is what it says, John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born Blind. This is a question coming from the disciples. Whose sin in his family made him be born this way, born blind? 
because they're still not understanding that all things all the time are for the glory of God. And this is what Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work while I am in the world. I am the light of the world. Can we just focus there for a minute on these words so that the work of God might be displayed in him? That's why it happened. So, friends, Christians are going to get in car wrecks. Christians are going to reach an age 25, 30, 40, where maybe one of us will become crippled with a disease. We're going to lose our jobs. We're going to get sick. As I was preparing this message, I thought about this a lot because most of the time, like I had 102 fever. And I was thinking, man, this isn't fun. But if it's to God's glory, amen. God is going to do whatever He needs to do through our lives and through our circumstances for Him to receive the maximum amount of glory. There's a video that I want to share with you guys that is not necessarily from a biblical, not not from the Bible, but from a real life example. And I hope it will help you to understand this.